Welcome to Voices of Esalen, I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Dr. Biko Gray, Assistant Professor of Religion at Syracuse University, whose work and research focuses primarily on the connection between race, subjectivity, religion, and embodiment. He is currently working on a book that explores how contemporary racial justice movements like Black Lives Matter demonstrate new ways of theorizing the connection between embodiment, religion, and subjectivity. Dr. Gray was a recent guest at the Esalen CTR, or Center for Theory and Research, where he made quite an impression on the other attendees, several of whom strongly encouraged me to get him for an episode of the show, and I'm so glad I did. Please enjoy this expansive conversation with Dr. Biko Gray. Dr. Biko Gray, thank you so much for joining us today on Voices of Esalen. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I would love it if you could talk to me a little bit about your current work and your current interests. Yeah, so I actually um, just finished wrapping up that manuscript, and uh, the title of the book is tentatively titled Black Lives Matter, and I'm, uh, the book is essentially an outgrowth of my dissertation project, which asked kind of a simple question, but it's deceptively simple. The question ultimately was, you know, in a world where the United States, for example, sanctions the killing of black people. What does it mean to be a subject and to be a person um, in this world? And so after a while, like when I, when I started doing, uh, when I actually got a chance, got a job and started revising the dissertation for, for publication, I decided that that question is something that needed more time. What I knew after, what I knew after I started doing that work was that um, even though I don't know what it means for a black person to be a subject in this world just yet, I do know what it means for a white person or for a normative subject to exist in this world. And in my mind, that means that, uh, and what I try to say in the text, at least in the manuscript, is that um, the normative subject is the subject that gets its, its existence from killing black people or from doing certain kinds of cognitive violence against black folks. Uh, the argument ultimately is that black life matters to the world, whether or not the world says so. Um, and so this is central to me because a lot of people have been having conversations about whether or not black lives matter. Uh, my argument is essentially that black lives have always mattered to the West. The question is not whether, but how. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, to, to dig into that a little bit, you mentioned that you weren't sure exactly how um, subjectivity worked for uh, a black subject, but you knew how it, it functioned for the normative white subject. Right, right. So, so essentially my argument here is, is that if you look at the history of philosophy, and I say particularly in the 20th century just because – to do anything else would have the book become unwieldy. Uh, but but I, I, if you look at the history of philosophy, if you go back as early as Descartes, for example, who makes a distinction between mind and matter, what you notice right away and what you notice really, really, really um, early on is that this distinction between mind and matter gets mapped out over and against the mind being the thing that controls what the matter is or what the object is. And so, in, and so it, that kind of dynamic continues to show itself in the West through the way in which thinking subjects attack, understand, cognize, comprehend blackness, particularly in terms of black bodies. And so what I try to do in the text is essentially show that this cognition, this mode of thinking, this mode of, of comprehension ultimately is, is a way of restricting and constraining blackness down into these black bodies that eventually become black corpses. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying a lot of sort of abstract stuff, so I'll bring it down just, just to make it very, very, very clear. To use a basic example, Timothy Lohman, who killed Tamir Rice, 
made the claim in his after-action report ultimately that Tamir Rice was about 5'8", appeared to be 185 pounds, and he thought he was 18 years old. What he's looking at in that moment is not actually a person but a body. And so it's about him measuring these dimensions in order to ascertain and provide justification for the violence that he enacts without thinking. So if you've seen the video of Tamir Rice being killed, Timothy Lowman actually shoots before the car ends. He shoots him twice, and the car hasn't stopped. Tamir Rice is in a gazebo. Someone calls 911 to ask questions and ultimately um, calls 911 to bring the cops there because they think someone has a gun in the park. They see Tamir Rice with this toy gun. They ask no questions. The car drives up and essentially guns down uh, Tamir Rice with two shots. He doesn't ask questions because he doesn't have to ask questions because this body is nothing but an object for him. And I think that this has everything to do with the Cartesian distinction between mind and matter. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. I know that I've said a lot, but this is the way in which I'm like working through it. If it doesn't make sense, definitely we can work through it. No, it absolutely makes sense. I think it's, I think it's brilliant. But the, the question that I had was that you I think, unless I'm, I'm, I misheard you, was that you said in the beginning you weren't sure how black subjectivity functions, but you, were, but you did understand how white subjectivity functions. It, is it because there's this, like the normative consciousness is the white consciousness? Or, or tell me a little bit more about that. Precisely. I think that, yeah, the normative consciousness is the white consciousness. And so, and so in very real ways, uh, black subjectivity is, is, is a dynamic site. It's a, I don't know, I can't really tell you what it is because it's constantly moving, constantly adjusting, constantly shifting, um, in large part because it, because it is constantly trying to evade the violence of the normative subject. And so while I can't pin down what blackness is, and I would never hazard to, what I can suggest is that blackness is what Fred Moten calls fugitivity, a kind of movement against the constraining and lethal and violent actions of normative subjects. Mm, okay, yes. Okay, I got it. To speak a little bit more about the police violence and a bit how that relates to, to black experience and, and mysticism, you, you co-authored an article with uh, Dr. Stephen Finley, who I spoke with recently, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. entitled God is a White Racist, Imminent yeah. Atheism as a Religious Response to Black Lives Matter and anti-black yeah. sanctioned violence. Right, so, so mm-hmm. talk to me a little bit about this, this connection between violence and mysticism. I, so I'll, I'll put all my cards on the table. I am not a scholar <laughs> of mysticism, so that's the very <laughs> first thing that I want to say. I, I am thinking particularly about, when I say mysticism, I'm thinking about a certain kind of dissolution of identity, of, of, of individual bounded subjects. And so usually in mystical discourses, you, you, you typically see something akin to a kind of union between the subject and God, such that the subject and God, or the boundaries between subject and the divine or the transcendent, are no longer present. You, you, there's a difficulty, there's a difficult, di- difficulty with the subject trying to figure out what distinguishes them from God. And so the way that I see mysticism operating within the context of blackness is in these movements where if you look at these marches, these protests, who can, like, what person, what singular bounded individual, you, when you see these images of people marching and protesting, can you discern? Once you're in the protest, once you're in the march, once you're doing these particular collective decisions, your own specific individual identity begins to blur with the collective. And I see that blurring as a kind of imminent mysticism. 
as a kind of as a kind of dissolution of of one's identity in favor of this thing that transcends them within the context of the world itself. Mm. Does that mm-hmm. does that make sense? Yes, that's fascinating. There's a kind of blurring of identity that can happen within the the protest. I mean, so what are your thoughts around the sort of large gatherings of people? Is this a productive element that's happening within our culture today, or is it something else? I don't know if it's. I don't know if I would use the word productive. I think that I would use the word expressive, a kind of release. I think it is a. I I I, I stray away from uh, terms like useful or productive in large part because, again, those are terms for me that sort of invoke a certain form of subjectivity that has to think of all actions as being connected to goals or to ends. And I'm not Mm. particularly sure that I'm invested in that. I do know that the release itself offers, in terms of protest, I do know that the release itself offers um, awareness. Uh, it's an ethical disposition that, said, that puts one's life on the line in the name of, of, of pushing against this violence that continues to be committed against black people to the, to the extent that that's going to have achievable goals or to the extent that, that it is productive, I, I remain unsure of that. And I'll give you a basic example. Uh, so George Floyd died, right? I'll give you, and Derek Chauvin killed him. Two things occurred as I was looking at this particular image. Number one, this is the second time in six years that we have seen someone on camera, or at least the second time in six years that we've seen someone on camera be killed and choked out to death. Uh, in two, on July 27, 2014, Eric Garner was choked out in a very similar way, made very similar claims. I cannot breathe. All of these things occurred, and yet nothing happened in 2014, right? And yet at the same time, in this particular case, we'd seen protests back then. Now in 2020, we're now seeing corporations say Black Lives Matter. We're seeing institutions release statements about, uh, about anti-black racism and how they're committed to a different kind of movement, a different kind of, of work that's going to address these ills and these evils. And I look at this and I say people would see this as productive, would see this as a particular kind of progress. I look at it and I say, number one, we've been here before. You should have known in 2014, at the very least in 2014. And number two, what does that difference, what does that change look like? And more often than not, what it looks like is essentially rehashing and rehearsing old tropes that everyone is particularly okay with, the same old status quo. So instead of doing the work of abolishing the police state, these corporations are interested in donating money to certain organizations. Instead of, instead of advocating for the absolute defunding of the police, as an institution, these corporations are particularly interested in working with established political institutions to make sure that we reform the police instead of actually doing the work of getting rid of this lethal anti-black institution. And so I say all of that to say that, that in certain ways, these goals, at least for me, that, we're see, that, that people are trying to attach to the protest, I'm not particularly invested in whether or not these protests are productive in that way, or even if they're going to achieve those set goals, in large part because this country just cannot abide by, by what these folks are asking for. So these protests, these movements, these marches, these moments of mystical engagement, in my mind, are movements of release, of, of remembrance, of mourning, um, not of celebration, not of a certain kind of productive activity. I, I'm hesitant to say that I'm a scholar of mysticism in large part because I don't know all of the different ins and outs of the Christian mystical tradition, right? So I know Abla and I know 
but in terms in terms of sort of the theology and the, or the the logic behind it, what I'm actually after is is understanding mysticism in that regard. I'm trying to draw from some of those folks and also from people like Howard Thurman to say that look, what it means to be mystical is to dissolve one's identity into something larger. If that's the case, then how do we not see the protest? as a moment of mystical experience. You are not simply yourself when you're standing out in the streets. You are not simply yourself when you are standing, when, you, when, you are, when you're facing SWAT teams, when, you're, when, when the president calls in you know, his troops in Portland. It is not each individual person on their own that begins to get sort of siphoned out. It is actually a mass of people. Um, and so your, the boundaries of your subjectivity start to become porous in very similar ways to what we read when we read folks like Abla, when we read mystics who are understanding themselves to be pierced and entered by God. They lose that sort of bounded sense of individuality, and I see something very similar happening uh, in the protest movement. I want to bring the discussion back to something that you mentioned a, bit, a while ago about the corporations mm-hmm. issuing statements, you know, yeah. solidarity or um, diversity goals and whatnot. Would you mind if I quoted you from a a, a Twitter quote? Is that I don't mind at all. (laughs) (laughs) I love your Twitter. You're uh, very good at that medium. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Diversity is paternalistic tokenism, and it's like I had never thought about it that way. I had never thought about it that much at all. Talk to me a little bit about that. What I mean here is, is that, I mean, I'm a professor, right? And so I'm sitting within the context of an institution that has consistently said that it is after diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? And what this usually means, um, what this usually means is that they want to slap a couple of black people on some flyers and essentially put them out there to say, hey, like, look, we are, um, you know, hey, look, we are absolutely for black folks or people of color or whatever the new acronym is that comes out of these particular kinds of sort of like, uh, mainline liberal conversations, and and and, and in my and so I, I so I look at that and I say this sounds a lot like a, a, what Eugene Genovese talked about when he talks about paternalism within the context of the, of of, ensla- of of enslavement. And so what essentially he says is that a lot of like white masters, to use a, for lack of a better word, would say they were good masters because they were nice to their black slaves. This is what he would say, or this is what these masters would say. And I look at, I look at diversity discourses in very, very, very similar ways, that at the end of the day, what you're looking at is, a, is an institution saying we're nice to our black people and we are nice to black people more generally. Look at how many black people we have coming to our school. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, it's paternalistic because it is essentially saying that this institution is here to take care of black people, to be nice to black people, right? But then on the other hand, it's also tokenistic because the, the, the evidence for this is, is, for example, taking pictures of particular professors while they're smiling and saying, look, we've got black people here, we're nice. And so for me, what that actually does is reinforce the violence of anti-blackness because you're actually not doing the work of restructuring the institution to be reconfigured around questions of equity, to be reconfigured around questions of what we might call anti-racist work. No curriculums change because of this. And hiring a chief diversity officer does absolutely nothing to change the material demands and the material circumstances of black students, of black professors, of black staff, of black workers. It does nothing to change those things. But now you have someone 
who can hire a high paid person from outside of the institution to essentially tell to essentially tell the institution and particularly black faculty members who study race what they already know. And so in my mind, I look at this and I say, no, like diversity discourses actually are not useful at all because they offer nothing by way of the shift. In my own institution, I'll give you a good example. A group of students have been protesting since I got there three years ago. We've had a series of racist scandals occur within the context of my institution since I stepped foot on there. Every year, one time, every year we had it happen. And so every time we get this message from our chancellor that essentially says, hey, we are working toward this. We value our black students. We do this. We do that. Group of black students gets pistol whipped near campus. We are working on this. We're doing this. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to get this right. Black people, uh, an anti-black slur shows up on the, on the mirror of a dorm. We're working on this. We're going to get it right. We're going to do these things. And, and, and after a while, the black students began to say, hey, look, like, here are our demands. You need to, like, really consider, like, making very real adjustments. And when it came down to it, the institution was unwilling to budge on many of the most substantial demands that these students made. But we're about diversity, which means that we'll be nice to you when we see you. But it doesn't mean that we're actually going to change the material circumstances, uh, and we're not going to shift, for example, the policing structure in our institutions. We're not going to shift, for example, the sort of the, the, the ways in which curriculums are structured around a certain normative white canon. We're not going to amplify black studies departments. We're not going to amplify religious studies departments by giving them more faculty lines and making them central to our curriculum. We're not going to do any of that. What we're actually going to do is, 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 <laughs> is make people nice. That, that's, that's the whole sort of move. And, and for me, that's paternalism. Uh, and then the tokenism, as I said before, becomes, you know, essentially taking pictures of folks and advertising to them. <laughs> right. does, that, does, that make, does that make sense? Yeah, like, yeah it, it does. No, it's, it's exactly right. And I would imagine it's like somewhat insulting for, you know, a uh, black faculty member, this idea like, hmm, did I get my job because I'm black? Or is it because of the offering, you know, the, the actual intellectual offering that I can give to? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I, I mean, yeah, all I can say is my department, I believe, hired me for my qualifications. You'd have to ask them. <laughs> um, but, but I will say that my, uh, my first day of my orientation, she's no, longer the pro, she's no longer the provost, but she was the provost at the time. It's day one of orientation, and I asked the question, and uh, I guess she just was surprised that a black man could put a verb and a predicate together or a subject and a predicate together and a subject and a verb together because she just commented about how incredibly articulate I was. Just, you know, uh -huh. it was just sort of fascinating to her. And she was like, oh, my God, like, this is just, oh, my God, like, I just, I just want to hand you the mic because you're so articulate. And I, I sat there and thought to myself, I have a Ph.D., in a humanistic <laughs> discipline, if I can't ask a question, you know what I mean? Like, like if I can't, if I can't speak properly, y'all hired the wrong person. So, you know, so I say, I say all of this to say, you know, these are the kinds of things that occur. And, and in her mind, she said nothing wrong. But it's precisely, it's precisely in that kind of action, right? It's precisely in those kinds of sort of niceties that they become mm -hmm. jabs. They become jabs. And that is, that in my mind, that particular experience is precisely what diversity is. Right. You right. see what I'm saying? Right, right. right. <laughs> Instead of saying, like, 
I, she didn't even hear my question. Like at that point, she was just astounded <laughs> at my capacity to put to put you know a subject and a verb together in a sentence. So yes, yeah. that that's my uh, thought thought about that. I know you have other things to ask me, so we can move on. But yeah, that's that's where what it is for me. So I'm beginning to talk to a lot of black thought leaders, and and most the thing that I hear kind of recurring is that they're exhausted. You know, not not only yeah. exhausted by this this current situation. But also with the prospect of having to educate like a suddenly curious non-black population, yeah, can you echo this frustration. If I'm not getting paid for it, absolutely. And even then, if I'm getting paid for it, at times I still get uh, I get a little tired. I think I think in in many ways, black people who are who have been doing this work for a long time, and I I speak for myself, but I've spoke to other folks. I think one of the big the big issues here is is that on the one hand, it it seems kind of encouraging that a whole bunch of people are interested now in doing quote unquote anti-racist work. Right. On the one hand, you're, mm-hmm. you know, like you're seeing folks like Robin DiAngelo shoot up to the top of the New York times bestseller list with not without complications, but she's up there. Um, you know, Ibrahim Kendi's up there. These sort of like popular academic texts, people are sort of gobbling up. Um, but, but on, and on the one hand, that sounds encouraging. On the other hand, you're asking a group of people or a community of people or a nation, to be honest with you, you're asking an entire nation that has been built upon white supremacist anti-blackness to now somehow figure out on their own how to no longer work in white supremacist anti-black ways. And so on the one hand, it's, you, you want folks to do the work on their own. And then on the other hand, uh, one of, as an activist said, as I, I was at a, um, at a church and activists are talking about it, hey, you don't trust white people to do it by themselves because the work will inevitably be stalled out behind certain sort of sentiments. So, you know, to sort of make this sort of like bluntly clear, if I say that all white people are racist, I'm not saying that, that all white people are hate-filled. I'm saying all white people are racist, which ultimately means all, which ultimately means all white people don't simply benefit from, from white privilege they are inheriting a system that requires my death. That's not, that doesn't mean that like all white folks are horrible or that I'm making a moralist argument here, I'm making a descriptive one. But a lot of white folks get upset and have bad feelings about that. And so if you put a whole bunch of white people in a room together who are trying to do anti-racist work and they encounter a statement like this, you can only imagine what kind of sentiments start to, well, I'm not racist. Why is, you know, why am I, why is this happening? I feel badly. You know what I mean? So it's a, it's a kind of, it, 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 on the one hand, yeah, I'm exhausted. On the other hand, I worry that if we leave, if we leave normative subjects to their own devices, that they will repeat the same violence in a new guise. And that's, that's why I keep going after the corporations and the institutions. They don't know what to do because they don't know how to do this because they don't know how not to be anti-black. Sprite does not know how to how not to be anti-black. Just because you have black people in your commercial does not mean that you are not exploiting the hell out of black people in black culture every time you put on these commercials, right? Amazon does not know how not to be anti-black when you're firing workers for, for not coming to work because of, because of COVID health issues. I don't give a damn about your banner that says Black Lives Matter because at the end of the day, that's easy for you. The harder work, the work that I can't trust you to do, not you specifically, but like the harder work, the work that I can't trust people to do, institutions to do, corporations to do, is the work of dismantling their own, their own comfort in the name of justice. And that, <laughs> that work is, is a hard, it's, it's hard fought and it's hard to come by. 
That's right, and I thank you so much for doing that work. I, I, I so appreciate your candor. I so appreciate your, your honesty in the way that you're yeah. talking about this. So you mentioned uh, Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility and Ibram Kendi's How to Be uh, an Anti-Racist. I will confess to having not only read those, but read those during the last month. Um, <laughs> and you mentioned that, that D'Angelo's work is, is somewhat complicated, perhaps by the, uh, the fact that she's a white woman speaking about this. And I, I was just wondering if you would touch upon that briefly. Ding, 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 ding. I think you just touched upon it. There have been so many, there have been so many people who have been writing about, who have been making very similar claims, very, and, much, and in much more profound, thoughtful, sophisticated, and nuanced ways who do not have million-dollar bestseller, bestseller titles to their name. And, right. and to the extent, this is, this is not to shade her out. I've met her. She is a pleasant person. She is incredibly wonderful. She is sweet as pie. And, and for, for white people and for white liberals and for white women specifically, she can sort of ring a bell. They, they seem to be receptive to, to what she does. I, I, I think, I, I think uh, so, I, so I say it's not without its complications because Debbie B. Du Bois was writing about whiteness in 1903 James Cone was writing about the violence of white supremacy in 1969 and 1970. Uh, Martin Luther King was saying some of these things in the, in, the late, in the late 50s, early 60s. Malcolm X was talking about this. James Baldwin was talking about this. And, of course, all of these are sort of well-known folks, but none of them, went, none, none of them were, were receiving the, same, the kind of sort of material things that are happening. And, and, and in, contemporary, in a contemporary world, you can someone like Stephen Finley, someone not simply someone like myself, someone like Fred Moten, Christina Sharp, there are a whole host of black study scholars who have, Frank Wilderson, Jared Sexton, there are a whole host of scholars who have been criticizing the violence of whiteness for, for years, for decades. Uh, and, and, and yet, you know, and yet, you know, here comes the sort of middle-aged, middle-class at this point, or probably wealthy white woman, who, who's packaged right. You know, she's humorous, she's like jokey, and, and, and she's able to command a certain kind of, uh, of attention from white audience and, and also a certain kind of material sort of gain from white audiences, such that anti-racist work becomes corporatized. Tim mm-hmm. Wise is another example of this. Tim Wise, people have been writing about, about how, how diffuse whiteness is, and people have been doing this kind of work, but Tim Wise is making considerable amounts of income, so is Robert D'Angelo. And it's not to shape them out and say, oh, they shouldn't earn a check, but it is to say, you know, what, what is this dynamic that white people can only listen to white people say the most uncomfortable things to them? If I were to say some of the same things that Robin D'Angelo said to a room full of white liberals, and trust me, I have, I, uh, I receive a certain kind of pushback where they receive a certain kind of, where she might receive a certain kind of receptance and uh, all of that. Somehow, white people can only be told by white people that they're being white, that they're, that they're problematic. But when you have that insular kind of conversation, there's no one there and there's no real way to understand the depths of the violence unless someone, unless someone is there, in my mind, to witness to the depths of that violence. Yeah, and that can't be the white person on the stage witnessing to it because it'll collapse very quickly into a politics of sentiment. I love how you kind of grounded this discussion in the beginning of our, uh, of our conversation in the, the politics of identity and subjectivity because it gets... Right. Man, it, it gets it gets complex. Um, yeah, so like, 
I'm going to make fun of myself here. Sound like an idiot. No worries. But I, I'm, I'm starting to think of myself, in my mind, as an ally. Like I'm questioning my own privilege and my complicity with racism. Now, uh, a woman who I've been in conversation with suggested to me that I can't call myself an ally. The term ally must be earned. And you have a really wonderful essay on your medium entitled, A Letter to White Liberalism. It was written in 2018. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You write, your liberal allyship is a detriment to my life. Eradicate the attempt to sympathize with me. Allow the veracity of my otherness to penetrate into the depths of your being. So talk to me a little bit about this. I, I think that the politics of allyship align very closely to the politics of sentiment. And so what I mean by both of those things is that allyship, as it has been articulated at least in the last few years, is premised upon a certain kind of either white guilt or white shame neither of which are are instructive or useful for the kind of work that needs to be done. White guilt often collapses a person into being sort of perpetually sort of deferent to blackness in a way that you can't get on, get on with just doing the work. Like I'll, I'll say it this way. White guilt, white guilt often manifests itself as like, if a critique is leveled, like the person is paralyzed into like, not doing anything because they need to sit with how they've messed up and they need to atone for the sins and all of this type of stuff. And the truth of the matter is, is that at least for me, I'm not interested in you, you personally or the you generally, I'm not interested in anyone doing any sort of public, like, I don't know, rituals of atonement. Apparently there was one, apparently there was something on social media that was floating around where white people were like kneeling and like, like saying that they were dying to their whiteness or something like that. And I was like, this is ridiculous to me. I don't know who decided <laughs> that this is a good idea. And I, like, that's not like for me personally, that's just, I'm not interested in that kind of like, and I don't remember whether it was, they were dying to whiteness. It was some sort of ritual, like public ritual of atonement. And I was just sort of watching this and I was thinking this is absolutely sort of like, you know, sort of ridiculous. And so on the one hand you have that happening. And so allyship actually, when that comes out, I say that to say that allyship, Ultimately, when someone comes to me and says, oh, I'm a white ally, my immediate question becomes, this is a, like, is this about you, right? And that, so that's the, that's the twin side of this. Once you constantly are atoning for your sins and doing it publicly, you've now made the entire question, the entire problematic of anti-black violence about white atonement for anti-black violence over and against eradicating anti-black violence. I think if you're part of the, the normative you know, uh, right. hegemonic identity of, of a nation, then it's hard to yep. displace yourself from, you don't, you just don't know how to function where you're, you're not the kind of center of the discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, this is what, this is what normative subjects do in the, in the book, um, in, in, in the book that the manuscript I just sent off, I say that the subject is always like the subject is always tardy to its own show. And the truth of the matter is the subject thinks that it is the center stage, but, but, all, but normative subjects, head of hegemonic subjects, wouldn't be normative or hegemonic subjects if they were not encountering something that they could rule over or deem abnormal. So the subject mm-hmm. doesn't come into being, the subject doesn't come into being except through otherness. It can't exist unless it has already been touched by something other than itself. This is like, Hegel 101, but anyway, right. I'm getting like way too way into too much in the weeds. But but because of that, it makes perfect sense that the subject can't displace itself because it it thinks that it's the star of its own show, 
because it's already eradicated the actual star of the show, which is this otherness that made the whole stage possible in the first place. Right. And so, and so you, and so in order to do it, I don't know how, I don't know how this gets done to be honest with you. My, my initial hunch was that people undergo in Christian language, undergo a crucifixion without the glory, just sort of like you just do the work quietly. Yeah. Not, you don't, you don't announce yourself as an ally. You don't expect any credit, any points or anything like that because of it. You just do it because it's right. Credit or no credit there. It doesn't matter. Um, so I say, so that's kind of how I think about it. And I'll give you a sort of like basic, basic, basic example of this. I have a colleague at Syracuse where I work, really, really close friend of mine. He's a white guy. And, um, and he took the time, many hours spent with me looking over my manuscript, us having conversations, calling, you know, I would call him at weird times of the day. Hey, I need to think through this. And he would be like, yeah, let's do it. And he never, 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 ever, ever, ever was like, I'm going to take credit for this. Never, ever, I, I would ask him, like, why are you doing this? And he would be like, honestly, because it's the right thing to do and because I care about you. And that's such a basic thing, but it, but it doesn't, but it's not steeped in this, like, I'm the person, like, helping the black, the young black junior <laughs> faculty help. You know what I mean? Like, it's not that kind of thing. It's much more like, in the, and I know this, he's going to get acknowledged in my book, but even if he didn't get acknowledged in my book, I know he'd be okay. Because it's not about the acknowledgement for him. It's just about doing the right thing in these interpersonal situations. And yeah, so that's, so that's when I think about allyship, I think about folks. Can I tell you one more story? Brief story. There's a, when I was doing organiz, organizing work around Sandra Bland and uh, in Houston, when, right after she died, I don't know if you know about Sandra Bland, she was beaten by a cop uh, in Houston and died in jail three days later. Uh, this has happened in Houston. I was doing my PhD at the time. And uh, we're organizing for her. And there's this white woman who's a minister uh, and, and who, for her, she was letting everyone know she's an ally of the black people, of the Negroes who were doing um, their work. And, uh, and it became very, very, very clear very, very, very quickly that she wanted recognition for her allyship work. So new national newspapers would come um, to, to cover the story. And although she was not the one who organized the work that was happening out there, there was another black queer man named Reese Carraway who had been doing some of the organizing work. She would keep him away from the reporters, keep other people away from the reporters so that she could let everyone know that she had primary purchase on this particular movement. And mm -hmm. so that's what, that's what allyship looks like to me. It looks like a certain kind of taking credit for doing the right thing when and as soon as you do that you've done the wrong thing so whatever the right thing is that you did is negated by the credit that you've taken and so that's i think that's that's my my sense of what allyship is that the otherness is still it, it hasn't hit you yet it's just a way for you to make yourself more important yes yeah that's great i mean you, you you basically you anticipated my question because what I wanted to talk about was like, okay, so what do the well-meaning uh, white people do at this moment? And, and, and because there are a lot of people who actually who care, and it's like myself included, it's like, oh, shit, how could I yeah. have been so, you know, how could I have just been so blind for so long? And whether it's like trendy to wake up at this moment or whether it's insulting, to wake up at this moment, nevertheless, people are waking up. But I, I mm -hmm. think that your description of how to be an ally without 
some sort of public reward is is a pretty good prescriptive. I, I, the only thing I'll add here, the only thing I'll add here is like I, I think it's akin to like men, be, like you know, Twitter bios are, you know, Twitter, and like as soon as I see a man who like says they're a feminist on Twitter, like in their bio, like questions get asked, right? Like I don't, like it's not like at least for me, I'm like, like what do you like? I think it's it's the same kind of thing. <laughs> if you're on Twitter and you say like, if in your bio you're like radical feminist leftist, I'm looking at you and I'm being like. The fact that you announced that says a lot more about you than it actually does about the work that you say that you want to do, right? So I, so for me, that's what I mean, right? So it's that kind of, like, I, I read a lot of black feminist work. I'm still deeply mired in sexism and in many ways guilty of misogyny. Like, it just kind of is what it is. Like, and so, like, there, like, even if I'm doing my best to do this kind of work on my own very quietly, it, 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 doesn't, it serves no one well. Not even, I mean, except for maybe my ego, for me to put on my Twitter bio or for me to put in my academic bio, I'm feminism. What? Like, I, right. I, like I don't, you know what I mean? So, that, so as soon as you name it as such. So that's, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's a certain kind of, like, quiet. And quiet, by quiet, I mean, like, really quiet. Like, really quiet. Like, si- Pete Buttigieg t- tweeted some things out, and I was like, I need you to, I need you, your best move right now is to silently disappear from the public sphere right now, as it relates, tweeted something about John Lewis, and I and I and I say that not because I dislike Pete, I don't know him well enough to do that, but I say that to say, like you're just virtue signaling, and it's 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 worthless right now. People are dying. Like we have to think about that part. So yeah, that's yeah that that that's what came to mind when you're talking about like the quietness. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How does the prison yep. system play into all of this? I don't know if this is too big uh, a, a, a question, but it's almost like can we discuss systemic racism in America without talking about the prison industrial complex? Do, do the central tenets of your work uh, intersect at all with uh, with the, what's going on in prisons? It does, but I'm not a I, 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 I'm not a I'm not a scholar of, I'm not a scholar of prison studies at all. I mean, I, I wish I could. I wish I could give a huge, like, really thoughtful, sophisticated answer. What I can tell you as of now is is that uh, is that for me, the prison industrial complex emerges from a from a from a from a structure of policing, and also from and this is probably going to be a bit the whole structure of the prison industrial complex is structured in my mind around a certain kind of Protestant theology of sin and punishment. And so, so, so in my mind, the prison industrial complex is essentially a sort of theological structure. And this is me personally. This is not me like this is me doing just a little bit of research on this, and then I'll get into sort of the numbers and everything. It's a it's a sort of it's a sort of it's a sort of theological structure that allows for us to openly openly gleefully joyously name the evil people who exist in contradistinction to our goodness. This is why this is why prisoners are treated so shittily in jails, right? It's because they're already presumed guilty, even if they're in a jail waiting waiting to have their case heard because there's a theological structure in place that automatically assumes and presumes not simply that they have done something wrong, but that they, that they exist as wrong. And so that, that theological structure in my mind is, is, is central to the development of, of policing and prisons within the context of this country. Now, because this country is also anti-black as hell, it's, it's a very, very, very short leap 
from all if you already think black people are evil and prisons are the place where you punish evil people then where would you put evil people in the place where you punish evil people the question is how do you do that without telling everybody that you hate black people and we found ways to do it in 19 in 68 and 72 with nixon nixon within 86 what was that? Yeah, eighty to eighty-eight with uh, mm-hmm. with Reagan, um, eighty-eight to ninety-two with, with yeah, all of that. I mean, and I'm I'm naming the presidents, but it's the same sort of move. And also, we have to keep in mind too, and this is the one thing that I really struggled with, is that even enslaved black folks who are not legally people, which means they are not subject to being criminals because they can't break the law because they're not legally people in the first, they could go to jail. So so. The prison industrial complex, as we know it now, is steeped in this idea that we sequester away people who we deem as evil such that we end up looking good. That's why they continue to proliferate. That's why we cannot get rid of them. That's why we can't. That's why we cannot leave them alone. And that's why we won't abolish, because without those prisons, without black people to be killed, without brown folks to be detained, without poor folks to be thrown in jail for quote unquote like before crimes of survival without homeless folks being thrown in jail because of because they can't afford to live anywhere else we would not understand ourselves as the bastion of freedom opportunity and democracy that we think that we are we need though we need that constraint to name our freedom got it okay cool hey how you doing on time i'm good how are you you got I'm me great home, so I'm, I'm i got time, okay cool we so good okay. yeah okay good i'm gonna i'm gonna quote your twitter again this is more of a i mean this is more lighthearted. I could go darker on the Twitter, but um, oh, no worries. I, I got, no, no, I got a good one. Minor issue. Does anyone else hate hearing the plural noun blacks? <laughs> I hate that. Talk term, to me about actually. it. Actually, I hate the term blacks in the plural. I just it. it, it, it I don't know if you ever heard. I don't know if your teacher used to ever like rubber fingernails on a chalkboard, and um, <laughs> and and you hear that weird ass scratchy sound. It, what it, it sounds like that to me, and the reason why is because <laughs> I am not, I'm not a property. So, like, blackness philosophically is a property of one's being. Um, it's, also, it's also, at least in terms of black studies, a dynamic, like, force in the world that moves and grows and, 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 and changes and evolves. Black as, <laughs> black as a plural noun is a thing. And it's just, and it's, and it's a thing that is, that is just an object. The other reason, and I didn't, I, I, yeah, I don't, I, 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 it, it feels nasty to me. I don't know how else to explain it. Like, yeah. it's just, why, why not just say black people? I don't understand why that's so difficult, but like, I think people are like, oh, it's just like, you know, conciseness of words. And I'm like, two words is not yeah. like, you know, and then, <laughs> and then, and then, you know, and then you've got like, yeah, I, 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 I'm not really Democrat nor Republican. I'm neither. So I'm like neither liberal nor conservative. But I will say, like, to shit on Trump just a little bit, like, I love my African-Americans. Like, when I hear things like that, I'm like, like, come on, yo. Like, that's just, that's just, like, come on, you got to be better. You know what I'm saying? Like, come on, man. Like, but yeah, so that's why. What, yeah. What do you think of the term people of color? Is it is it reductive? Does it posit a sort of equivalence among Yes, it non, does. Non-whites. Talk to me about So I, I think, and this is actually I had this conversation on Twitter, too, about the new expanded one is BIPOC, black indigenous people of color. Here's the thing. Apparently, I don't know the history. I, I just found out the history of, like, women of color, which was a way of, of announcing a certain kind of solidarity. Um, that is not what the term means now. The term means now anybody who ain't white. 
The problem with talking in that way is that there, that anti-blackness is a global phenomenon. Um, and, and I mean, anti-blackness, like the, the sort of the, the structural abject engagement with blackness, the exclusion and the violence enacted against black people, black lives is a global thing. And more often than not, that kind of pushes across and between races. Give you a basic example. Ricky, Ricky Rubio, Marco Rubio, Ricky Rubio is the point guard for the, the Suns. Anyway, Marco Rubio is a proud Latino. Ted Cruz is a proud Cuban Latino. Both of them are supporting a, a not simply an institution, but a Republican Party that is, that is virulently anti-black in its engagement. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. in and of itself lets us know, but, but if we say POC, they are welcomed under that umbrella as a kind of equivocation, right, that, they're, that they are now introduced into that. And they're, they're some of the more extreme examples, but you can see colorism in Puerto Rico, for example, or colorism in Haiti and the Dominican Republic, for example. You can, look in this, you can look in South American countries and where you're seeing like a distinction between like lighter-skinned Latinos and then black and then black Latinos who are Afro-Latinos. Is like, and, people are, and people are like, they're miffed by it. So anti-blackness occurs within the context of communities of color. And, and so that requires a different kind of analytic. It doesn't shut down solidarity, but it requires a different kind of analytic. It requires a different lens, a different approach to this work. Um, and so that, that's what I mean by that, that. That's one of the reasons. The other reason is in the United States, there are only two twin evils that constitute this country. And that is, geno- that is indigenous genocide and chattel slavery. Those are only two evils that constitute this country as, as it shows up in the West, right? Those mm. are the twin evils, chattel slavery and indigenous genocide. With that in mind, indigenous genocide, settler colonialism, requires a certain kind of analytic to understand it. Settler colonialism kills people to take land. Chattel, anti-black chattel slavery leaves the land and takes the people and keeps them alive. Those two, mm. those two analytics are completely different. One is to eradicate any presence of a person and, and so essentially take their land. The other one is to keep the presence of the person but actually leave their land behind. To think mm. about that, which means that, which means that like anti-black child of slavery is a biop, or as, as a Chilean Bemba says, is a necropolitics. It's a politics of living death. It's a politics that keeps you alive to work you to death. And that's where black people come from. And this is not to say, like, other oppressions are worse or better. I'm not interested in that game. I'm interested in simply saying that when we think about blackness in this country, you have to wrestle with that, with that particular analytic of being kept alive to be worked to death. If you don't understand that part and if, you're, and if you can't identify with that particular, like, line of engagement, that particular legacy and tradition of violence, then at the end of the day, it becomes very, very, very difficult for us to have conversations about what solidarity looks like. Because, because that, the other part about it is, is that we don't know where we come from. So that's, just, that's all of this to say there's a whole bunch that comes with the specificity of blackness. It doesn't mean that it's, I'm not here to say one's worse or better. I'm really just here to say that we really need to be really super thoughtful about how we engage questions of white supremacy, how we engage questions of, of, of systemic racism. So that's why I think that we have to be, we have to find different ways of talking about it. And just saying people of color, 
like, the analytics are different. I don't know what it's like for my family to be trapped in cages because they're not from here. I'm not, I'm not subject to that, certain, that kind of xenophobic violence. So what I can say is I know that shit is wrong. I know it shouldn't happen. But I'm not going to be able to, like, analyze that situation and provide explanatory de- details for it because that's not, my, that, that's not the lens through which I understand the world. Let me ask you about, about Eflin. It was fun, but go ahead. Sorry, I had a blast. When you think about a just, equitable Eflin or, or really institutions that are like it, what would that look like to you? Uh, I mean... You know, the question, this is a question that constantly comes up in my mind uh, when we talk about these things. So I, I'll say, if you, if you, I actually, actually put this to some folks when I was at Esalen. I said, like, like, they have to, like, the leadership has to make a decision about what kind of Esalen that it wants to be. If it wants to remain largely homogenous, for, for me personally, I'm not really tripping. That's fine. If that's what you want to do, just be honest about that and say, yeah, this is the audience that we cater to. We're okay with catering to relatively well-off white folks who are, you know, thinking about human potential. Like, if you're down for that, by all means, just be honest about it. And then everyone can be on the same page. And I can realize for me personally, like, you know what, this was a blast. But, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just an exception to the rules. But if, we, if, if, if you want something else, and that's a question that, that the leadership has to think about, if you want something else, it's going to cost. It's going to cost a lot because it means that you have, to, you have to give scholarships to folks who cannot afford to do this, who cannot afford to go there on their own. You're going to have to open up spaces for people who cannot afford to pay whatever the going I – could, I can't afford to go to Esalen. Like, like, you're going to have to open, if you want more black people there, you have to be welcoming and inviting for them to be there. Then you have to adjust the curriculum such that it opens up in that particular way. Then you've got to make sure that the board is different. And then, I mean, there are just so many different moves that have to be made, and it's a costly set of moves if you want something like a much more complex sort of, I guess diverse is the, the only term, but like a, a, a kind of diverse Esalen, you've got to do what it takes to bring folks who are diverse to, from, I mean, to Esalen. Now, the other side of this, and this is something that I'm not trying to be shady toward Esalen, like I'm really, I had a blast when I came. It was pretty much, it was fun. Thankfully, I had another black guy there with me. With, Dr. Finley was there with me, so we had a really good time. But, um, nah, we were, we were sitting there. Yeah, we had a, we had a blast. But, like, but, but no, the, the truth of the matter is, is that, like, if you want, if you want these opportunities to show up for for other people, you want these opportunities to like to 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 be put. To, if you want these opportunities to be open to other folks, you have to do the work, the really critical, hard, thoughtful, intentional, brutal work uh, of, of making those adjustments. And and more often than not, when these conversations happen, especially with with most institutions who make claims to be wanting to be more equitable, most institutions say we can't afford it. And so as soon as I hear that, I say, okay, well, there's that. Like, I don't really have anything else to say. If you can't afford it, then just be honest about what you can't afford, and that way we all can be on the same page. I'm glad you brought up the idea of scholarship because it was sort of – it came out on social media. Some people were suggesting, like, 
yeah. Esalen needs yeah. to offer more scholarship to BIPOC. And then it was like, no, the idea of scholarship is quite problematic. In, in, in some ways it can be thought of as, as tokenizing or paternalistic because it, it kind of posits this idea that black people can't afford to be at Esalen. So can you speak just a little bit about the, the ideas around scholarship? I mean, if this thing is about meritocracy, then people who are against scholarships are absolutely correct. Like, like we're not talking, I mean, like, what, what I was thinking about in terms of scholarships is, like, look, <laughs> you say you want black people to be here, here's a class, or here's a week or whatever. Anybody who wants to come, you know, in terms of capacity, if they can, if they can make their way through, they're going to get there. That's what I mean by scholarships. I think, you're, I think people are absolutely right when they talk about a certain kind of meritocracy. Most times scholarships are articulated in terms of, like, the best black people coming or whatever the case may be. And in that regard, that becomes problematic for multiple reasons, class and all that type of stuff. The other part about it is, is nah, fam, I mean, yeah, it, might, it may make assumptions that black people can't afford to go there. But the other part about it is, is that, like, no, like, there are folks who might really benefit from some of the classes that people are offering up there, a lot of people in my mind would benefit from just being there for a week right off of the, right off of the coast, just the kind of the clearing of one's mind, the clearing of one's soul, looking at water crash upon the waves. There's just something or crash upon the rock. There's something about that that I can't imagine anyone not benefiting from. And in my mind, if people, but people can't afford to get there. And so I think, I think I, I don't really have the same worries about scholarships in the same way that someone else might say, well, it reduces all black people to being poor people. No, if you can afford to come, come. These scholarships are for folks who can't afford to come. Are you optimistic about this moment? Does it feel like kind of a sea change? Or is it just sort of more like business as usual, this is a blip on the, on the radar screen? It's an important question, but it's a hard one. I would say... I am, um, there's a sea change. People's opinions, for example, about Black Lives Matter, they have shifted. Whereas in 2016, 2014, 2015, 2016, Black Lives Matter was understood as controversial at best and terroristic at the worst. Uh, we're now seeing a certain kind of sea change in terms of people's uh, perspectives on it. And so that in and of itself, I guess, could be understood as like a kind of cause for optimism. Uh, I temper that heavily, 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 though, with what I've known for known this country to do historically. So to sort of bring this again, like the concrete reality in 1863, you know, we had been running away for a long time, like you know, at least, at least since 1619, we had been running away for a while. And in 1863, a white man signs a piece of paper and, and declares that he's freed all of the enslaved black people and the country rejoices. And then we have, reconstruction and then a compromise is made between the two parties uh, in the name of some kind of egalitarianism which which rolls back all of the possibilities that have been that might have been opened up by that moment in 1863 also that moment is also deeply covered over by the agency that enslaved black folks use to not simply run away but to put pressure on a government to make these moves in the, in the first place abraham lincoln is understood as a hero when in reality he was doing, he was making a political calculation. And I think that has to be taken into account. You fast forward 100 years, you look at 64 and 65 with the Voting Rights Act and the, um, and the, and the Civil Rights Act, and we have expectations again that things are going to get better. And the truth of the matter is, is immediately after 65 happened, well, actually in the year 65, Malcolm X was killed. Three years later in 68, 
Martin Luther King is killed. And so then you have to wonder, well, what's going down? 1968, uh, Richard Nixon is elected. 1972, we have the war on drugs. You already know the story from there. And so every moment that has been perceived as a kind of like moment for optimism or progress has often been, been met with intense retaliation. Kara Anderson has a book called White Rage where she says that White Rage is not actually like the plan, like burning crosses in someone's yard. It's part, that's part of it. White Rage actually shows up when Richard Nixon gets elected. White Rage actually shows up um, when Ronald Reagan declares a war on drugs, when a Willie Horton ad gets played. White Rage actually shows up when the Bill Clinton signs a crime bill. White race shows up when a country votes for uh, Donald Trump in the name of economic resentment. That's what white race looks like. And so, and so these moments of intense sort of, these moments of what appear to be progress, in my mind, are too often and too quickly almost retaliated against or um, repressed. I would say this, the difference here, and I don't think this is a cause for optimism, the difference here is that we're now seeing corporations get involved in what they think is a kind of social justice engagement. And I think, I think that is an incredible, that's an incredibly problematic formulation. When corporations begin to say Black Lives Matter, when corporations begin to make and lay claim to Black, to racial justice, uh, we have to find different ways to move because ultimately their bottom line is profit. So they're not actually, in my mind, there's no way that they could be doing this except to make sure that, they're, that, they're, that they're, their quarterlies don't fall, that their profit margins don't fail. And so in my mind, I don't want to say I'm optimistic, but I am looking at this moment and saying, let's hope that normative subjects die. And I don't mean physically die. I mean the very structure of the subject that requires black death, that requires that black people die in order for it to live that that very structure of subjectivity, let's hope that this is the moment in which it's done away with. I'm not, I'm not positive about that. I don't think it's actually going to happen. But I do think that this moment gives us a, a moment and opportunity to reflect on that. So, yeah, that, that, that's where I am. I'm, I'm not, you know, I don't, yeah, that, yeah, that's it. Uh, Dr. Beagle Mandela Gray, how can our listeners find out more about you? Where can they find you on, on social and, and yeah, and know more about you. My Twitter handle is my full name, Biko Mandela Gray, B as in boy, I-K-O, M-A-N, D as in dog, E-L-A-G-R-A-Y. That's also my Twitter handle uh, or my Instagram handle too. But if you want to catch me, catch me on Twitter. I'm on Medium too every once in a while, I'll write, but academics has taken my life over, so I try to get on there every once in a while. When I had a blast talking to you, Sam, this was, this was good. I thought it was... Yeah, I, I won't say I thought it was anything. I thought we were gonna, it was going to be like a stilted conversation, but it was good to talk with you. And hopefully, you know, I wasn't too long-winded, but you got me excited. So Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Frenzel, Terry Gilby, Greg Archer, Shannon Hudson, Kelly McKay, and Michelle Broderick, with a special assist from Andrew Lanterman, Stephen Finley, and Jeff Kripal. Our theme music is by Nico Holloman. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Our show is made possible by your contributions.